Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, as we continue this uh, mini-series on the subject of angels, angelic beings, uh, Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare, as we have jumped off a little bit from Daniel chapter 10, uh, trying to learn about what is going on behind the scenes in the spiritual battle, the unseen uh, area of the created universe. We're looking in Ephesians chapter 6 so that we might frame our understanding of this in a biblical way. And uh, we're going to read this morning verses 10 through 13 as we begin. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes these words uh, near the end of his letter to the Ephesians saying this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Last week, we looked at the subject of Satan, our great adversary. And this makes sense because we are supposed to be able, according to verse 11, to stand firm against his schemes. If you were going into battle in one form or another, you would want to know about the enemy. You would want to know about the enemy's strategy. And you would want to know about the enemy's tactics. Accordingly, you would want to know not only what you can know about the commanding officer of that opposing army, in this case, Satan, the ruler of the demons, but you would also want to know about the strategy and the tactics, the techniques, the activities of those who are underneath that commander. And in this case, we have reference to such enemies the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are, in fact, as Christians, engaged in battle against opponents. And it's not so much the opponents that we often think of when we think about those who are against us. Very often when we think about opponents, we think primarily about humans, about people who are unbelieving about people who don't like Christianity and those who may persecute us. And though it is true that the Bible speaks of those uh, people who are against the gospel and against Christians as adversaries and opponents, there are bigger fish to fry, if you will. There are more, uh, there are more powerful opponents, and there are those that we are specifically said to go into battle against. When it comes to the realm of the Christian's battle, it is not so much that we fight against people who don't believe the gospel. If anything, we fight for them against the influence of others who have sway over their minds. The direct battle for the Christian, rather, is against Satan and against the work of satanic angels, of demonic rulers, of angelic powers who are evil and opposed to God. That's what this says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these types of forces. So we need to know what exactly they're like. 
What are we up against? We want to understand the scope of the difficulty that we face, and we want to understand how they actually work. And this is maybe even more important in some ways than understanding Satan that we looked at last week, because with Satan, there is in some sense a general agreement about how he might work. But with demons, with these evil spirits, these fallen angels, there is all kinds of speculation, all kinds of crazy ideas, all kinds of human ideas. All kinds of ideas that are not biblical or that take something from the Bible and extrapolate it to the most extreme degree possible. There are all kinds of experience-driven understandings of demons that have not been put to the test of Scripture and made subject to what God actually says on the matter. So it's important for us to actually do this this morning. People speak about the kinds of attacks that demons have against people even to this very day. They use terms like demonization, invasion, intrusion, affliction. The question is whether or not God actually says that this is the way that these beings work. So we want to understand what it is that they actually are, what they do, what they're capable of, and a little bit this morning of how we should respond to them. And then as we Uh, follow-up next time, we'll look at the direct uh, passage in the rest of Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare and what it is that we are actually engaged in, what we are actually to do if we're going to overcome these evil forces that come against us in the gospel fight. So we're going to look at demons this morning. Last week, Satan, our great adversary. This morning, we're looking at demons who are ruled by Satan, who is called the ruler of the demons. And as we did last time, we're going to begin by looking at some attributes of demons, some attributes of demons. This is not particularly complex. In many ways, we've already looked at this when we looked at the nature of angels as created spirit beings. But in particular, angels, excuse me, demons are fallen evil angels who are ruled by Satan. Fallen, evil angels who are ruled by Satan. We already know that they are evil. We already know that they are angelic beings, that they were like the uh, good angels, the holy angels, and yet there was a time when they fell, they rebelled against God along with Satan, their ruler, and they are called this in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uh, is doing some healing and casting out of demons, and these, uh, these rulers of the Jews, they blaspheme, these Pharisees, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, attributing God's work by the Spirit of God in casting out demons to Satan. And they say this in Matthew 12, 24, the Pharisees heard this and they said, this man, referring to Jesus, casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Jesus put this kind of uh, attribution of the Holy Spirit's work to Satan as the ultimate sin, the unpardonable sin, that which can never be forgiven because you are directly responding to the work of the Spirit of God upon Christ in the polar opposite way of what you're supposed to. Instead of faith, it's complete and total rejection and unbelief. But in here we do find this implicit statement, which is 
that there is a ruler of the demons. And so these are not creatures that simply do whatever they want to do on their own independent authority. Even they, as rebels against God, nonetheless still fall under the rule and under the direction of another, namely Satan, who is their ruler. And so they do operate at his behest. They are doing his bidding. This is important when we think about later on how we understand the way that they operate, in particular by means of deception. When Satan operates by deception, then we understand that as his main tactic as he tries to tempt us. Um, but it shouldn't be surprising then that his, uh, his operatives operate by deception as well. So they are ruled by Satan. They are fallen evil angels. Secondly, we can refer to them as subjugated rebels against God. Subjugated rebels against God. They rebel against God but they are not able to uh, fully get away with it. They have been subjugated. They are subject to God in the sense that God keeps them in check. And he even holds some particular ones of them under bondage. He refers to this in Jude, chapter, or in Jude verse 6, that there are some who are held under bondage for the judgment of the great day. Uh, there are demons who are worried when Jesus confronts them in the Gospels about being sent to the abyss ahead of the time. So evidently, they not all are as free as others to roam around throughout the earth. But they are... Uh, they are those who were created by God. Colossians 1.16 tells us this, that all things were created through whom? Through Christ. By him all things were created. And what does it say? It says, whether, uh, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This having reference likely here to uh, not just the earthly uh, not just earthly types of rule and stations of rule and reign, but um, also, and maybe even exclusively in this case, to those angelic type of beings who are in various positions of power and authority. Colossians 1.16 tells us that these were created by God through the Son, through Christ. These beings rebel against him. 2 Peter 2.4 refers to the angels who sinned. The angels who sinned. And of course, every demonic activity is an act of rebellion against God because they are obeying Satan rather than God. They are trying to harm God's people, trying to lead them astray. And so they are in rebellion against him, just as we saw last time, that Satan operates by opposing God and opposing God's people and opposing God's purposes in his created world. So they rebel against him, but at the same time, demons are terrified of him. They are not able to just get away with whatever they're doing. James 2.19 says the demons also believe that God is one, and what do they do? They tremble. The demons have more of a fear of God, not a godly fear of God, not a worshipful fear, but a, a terrible or terrified fear of God, more so than many human beings do. They at least understand what God is like in some real sense. So he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. When we see Jesus confront certain demon-possessed individuals, we'll see this in a moment, but in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 5, they say, stay away from us. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Leave us alone. They're terrified at him. 
And so the demons are a little bit like the kids in school who are always causing trouble, always causing harm, doing vandalism and bullying and whatever else they can do whenever they think they can get away with it. But then when the teacher comes around, they clean up and they get their act together a little bit, not because they're trying to do good, but because they just don't want to get in trouble. This is what the demons are like. It's important to remember this, even as we consider that they are powerful, that they are out to get us, uh, that they, like Satan, are still under the reign of God and that they can only do what he allows them to do. And this should be a great comfort to us. That even as we consider what oftentimes can be very scary, that we know that they are subjugated to God, even as they do not act willingly in subjection to him. And then, of course, uh, one more truth about this, about their relationship or their uh, rebellion against God. They have been disarmed and defeated in some sense by Christ. And Colossians 2 refers to this. Colossians 2 verse 15 speaks about the activity of Christ and it says when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him so here Christ has demonstrated that he is victorious over them all that remains is for the rest to actually play out and finish so these are some of their attributes they're fallen evil angels ruled by Satan they're subjugated rebels against God and they though they have great power, are ultimately under the control of not only their, ultimate, of their uh, immediate commander, Satan himself, but the ultimate ruler of all things who is God, who only lets them do what he is glad to permit them to do, even as he's not pleased with their activities. Well, let's look at what those activities are now, not just their attributes, but the activities of demons. Now we want to look at this sort of from a uh, biblical highlight perspective from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, when we break them up in these terms, this doesn't mean that these activities are only taking place in the Old Testament or only taking place in the New Testament. But these are some of the main ways in which they are featured, in which they're highlighted and their activities are put on display for us to see. Now it is important to keep in mind that we don't always know what's going on. In fact, most demonic activity is not the kind of thing that we can see. But we can get an idea about what's going on behind the scenes when we look at some of the examples of the way that they do show up in scripture. We can get a pretty good picture of what they're like. So in the Old Testament, uh, one example we have in 1 Samuel 16 is direct personal affliction. Direct personal affliction. Now, we uh, may or may not be seeing something when we look at this that is uh, going on all the time in other places throughout the Old Testament. This is a pretty unique circumstance. In 1 Samuel 16, you have a transition of the Spirit of God from being upon Saul as ruler of the king of Israel uh, to David, who would become the ruler of the king of Israel. So God anointed Saul as king. He did this physically by having Samuel place the anointing oil upon Saul's head, sort of a surprise attack from behind as well. It's a pretty humorous account. And then the Spirit of God comes upon Saul uh, in spiritual form so that the Spirit is enabling him to rule and to act on God's behalf. That's why he was known as God's anointed because he was anointed not only with the oil, which was symbolic, but with the actual Spirit of God so that he might carry out the task that God had for him to do. Well, there came the time where Saul rebelled multiple times and God sends Samuel to replace him by selecting the next king. And he goes to Bethlehem, uh, Samuel does, and he anoints David as the king in waiting. And when this happens, 
Um, you have this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So you have this transition of one anointed to the next. Interestingly, David continues to treat Saul with the respect that's due the anointed one and refuses to kill him even when he has the chance. But David is the one, in fact, who now has the Holy Spirit upon him. In fact, you may uh, recall the language of Psalm 51 when David asks God after his Uh, After his extreme sin against God, this adultery and murder and the horrible things that he did. uh, And he asks God, he says, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Which is not a sign that David could become unsaved as if the indwelling Holy Spirit that we as believers have today could be taken out, making us not believers. It's not that David was asking about that. But he recognized that the spirit of the Lord was upon him, anointing him to carry out this task as the king of Israel over God's chosen people. And he valued that. And he says, I know that you could do this as you did with Saul, but please be merciful to me and don't do this. Well, in Saul's case, it did happen. And not only did it happen, but there was a replacement um, on the other end of the spectrum. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand. And you will be well. What do we learn from this here? Well, this turns out to be David for one thing. And this is how David gets into the king's court. Um, But what you have here is, first of all, this evil spirit comes from the Lord. The Lord ordains this and ensures that this happens. This is not the only time when God instructs an evil spirit to do something. Uh, This does not make the Lord active in doing evil, but he is using a spirit, an evil spirit, a demon who is already evil to carry out his purposes. And in this case, it is a judgmental purpose upon Saul, coming upon him to terrorize Saul. And Saul became agitated by this and it bothered him and afflicted him in ways that were, uh, that caused him to act in certain ways that were, that he would not otherwise have acted, uh, ways that brought just pain upon him. We read over in Acts, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel 18, verse 10 and 19, verse 9, what happens. Verse 10, it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And by the way, I don't think that he just wanted David's clothes to be stuck there or David to be there kind of, you know, as normal, except he's stuck to the wall. He's trying to put that spear through David. But David escaped from his presence twice. 1 Samuel 19, 9. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul and he, as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. Maybe they should have traded instruments, by the way made uh, both be a little bit more responsible with it. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. You see here that this evil spirit from the Lord has an effect upon Saul. It bothers him and it influences him to 
take this kind of action against David, perhaps even because David was the Lord's anointed and the evil spirit is coming after him, though we can't say that for sure. But here you have this direct attack on this one individual. Now, granted, this was a very important individual, a very um, exalted individual in the political sphere. And so God is doing this for a particular reason, but it does show that it is possible and it does show that demons have this kind of power if God allows them to have access to someone to cause them not only to be afflicted, but also to act in certain ways and to take control of them to cause them or to influence them one or the other to actually take certain actions, uh, even actions that are hostile and powerful and harmful toward other people. Another example in the Old Testament of the way that demons operated is by uh, deceiving prophetic spirits. Deceiving prophetic spirits. And we get an example of this in 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, uh, a fascinating passage. And in 1 Kings 22, there is a battle going on. The, uh, at this point, the kingdom of Israel has been split. King Ahab is this evil king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. And there is a prophet uh, named Micaiah, and Ahab um, doesn't like this guy. So you read in verse 13, then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. Uh, I know you're supposed to speak God's word, but you just go ahead and tell what's good. Just go ahead and tell us something nice. Uh, this continues to this day, does it not? But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, get up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Maybe you should start to reflect upon why. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left, these angels surrounding him. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab? to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. They are trying to deceive Ahab. They are trying to cause Israel to go to destruction and Ahab to go to destruction. God is more than happy to judge Ahab in this way. He has rebelled against him and he says, okay, you want to go lie? Have at it. You go deceive these uh, you go deceive Ahab by means of these false prophets and put, put this lying spirit into the mouth of all of these prophets, and that's exactly what he did. Again, this should not be surprising, this deception that comes about, but we get a little picture into what's going on behind the scenes when false 
prophecy is going on, when false teaching is going on. We'll see more, than, more of this in the New Testament as well. Uh, but we find this here in 1 Kings 22. And it doesn't just happen in the form of individual prophecies or prophecies that lead somebody to ruin in military function. But it actually turns out that these demons are behind false religion as well. And so the third example from the Old Testament of demonic operation is as promoters of false religion. And for this, we turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. You have here a a song of Moses, uh, a song that is to be taught to Israel that predicts their own rebellion against God. And they were to learn this so that it would be a witness against them when one day they actually did what the song said. Imagine learning a song like that in your childhood for that very purpose. But God knew what they were like. He knew what they were going to do. He knew their rebellion against him. And so it says, starting in verse 15, Yet Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to what? Demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Now, they may or may not have explicitly, intentionally been sacrificing to demons, although some throughout history and even to this day do, in fact, do that. But they are sacrificing to other gods, gods that were made up. And what's implied by this, and what we'll see in a moment, that Paul picks up in the New Testament is that to offer sacrifices to other gods is, by implication, to offer them to demons because they are the ones behind these false religions. Again, we'll see this more specifically stated when we get to 1 Corinthians 10. But they are behind these false religions. And this, again, should not be surprising. If they want to draw away God's people, not only can they try to curse them and damage them physically, but also they can try to come after them and draw them away from the worship of the one true God. Thus, it would not be surprising if they would promote all kinds of false religion to steal away the hearts of God's people from What God says is the great commandment. What in fact is that great commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God. You love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You're supposed to know know that he is one. There is one God, one Lord. And this is what we're supposed to do. This This is what's supposed to drive our entire lives. So anything that pulls us away from that is going in line with what demons would desire for us to do. Whether it's something that they have explicitly promoted or not, or whether it's just the desire of the flesh or worldly influence, whatever it might be, anything that pulls us away from the worship of God and the worship of Jesus Christ and a love for him in exchange for a love and a worship of something else is implicitly demonic. At least it's in line with exactly what they would delight to see us do. So where we find ourselves doing that being drawn away from true religion, we need to repent and we need to turn back to the Lord. There is a fourth way that these demons show up in the Old Testament and that is as what we'll call geopolitical influencers. Geopolitical influencers. And this is what has uh, led us here in the first place. In Daniel chapter 10, we find this going on. 
Daniel chapter 10, where this messenger that comes to Daniel makes reference to the prince of the kingdom of Persia who was withstanding him for 21 days. Uh, you also have him speaking of Michael, one of the chief princes in Daniel 10, 13. Uh, Michael in Daniel 10, 21 is said to be the prince of your people, he says to Daniel. Your people are Israel. He refers to this also in Daniel 12, 1. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And uh, he's referred to as Michael the archangel in Revelation chapter 12. One more verse in Daniel 10, in verse uh, 20, he makes reference to the prince of Persia. Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. There is here a rule or an influence of some kind, power that is exercised in some way over these geopolitical kingdoms. Now, it's important to note what he is not saying here. He does not speak of them as princes over particular geographic areas or territories. There is nothing here about that. In fact, the Persian Empire and then this prince of Greece who comes will rule over largely an overlapping territory. And when he's speaking here to Daniel, Michael is still the prince over God's people, or he is the prince over Daniel's people, Israel, even when they're in captivity. So it's not that there are these angels who are only over a particular geographic land, which is the way that some people view demons and maybe even angels, uh, even to this very day, saying that there is such thing as territorial spirits or people who rule over these geographic boundaries. This text says nothing of that sort. In fact, it, instead, it refers to people who are leaders, the influence upon the leaders and the kingdoms and those groups of people. So we need to make sure that we don't confuse those two things. Uh, otherwise, we find ourselves uh, thinking that we are invading onto certain territory that is owned by demons rather than operating according to the way that they really work. They do, though, influence governmental and geopolitical affairs. And there are demonic forces that are behind what is going on here. Now, in this case, it's pretty clear that you have some on the side of God's chosen nation of Israel who stand up and protect them. And then you have those who oppose that particular chosen nation, those who are trying to do harm to them, those who would try to come against them. God limits what they are able to do. And in fact, he even uses the rule of these kingdoms to bring about his ultimate purpose, which is what we learned about in Daniel chapter 2 through 7 in particular. But nonetheless, they are in opposition to God and to his people. So today we shouldn't be surprised when there is hostility from governments or governmental leaders toward Christianity. We should be slow to speculate about exactly what is demonic and what is not. Where did this come from? Do we know for sure? We should be very slow and cautious in assessing and assigning things that the Bible does not directly tell us about. But we should recognize and, and not be so naive as to think that this is all merely human. That any opposition to Christianity or to God's purposes from a governmental level or a geopolitical level, that we, we shouldn't think that this is just simply human operations. And though we 
should be slow to make definite proclamations about the mechanics and the how and the why and the who, assigning certain people as demon-possessed or run by a demon or those kinds of things. That kind of thing is not, that kind of warrant is not really granted to us in Scripture. We should also acknowledge the reality that this is very possible and we should recognize the fight that we are up against. So they can serve in this way. There's no reason to think that this has stopped. There's no reason to think that this was limited just to this particular time in history. In fact, the accounts of the book of Daniel take us all the way through to the end time. And ultimately, we even understand from Revelation 13 that the ruler of the demons, Satan himself, will empower the ultimate government ruler short of Jesus Christ, who is none other than who? Antichrist. So this is far from over and Satan will continue to try to influence the world through these, these um, type of demonic influences, not only in the personal level, but also in the governmental, the geopolitical level, until such time as they are completely destroyed. So, no speculation, however, proper caution and a proper understanding is called for. Now, how do these guys show up in the New Testament? Well, we have a repeat in the New Testament of the kind of physical affliction and control that we saw uh, with King Saul, physical affliction and or control, only it is really magnified and heightened. So we turn over to the Gospels and we can read a few uh, brief accounts from, for example, the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. And uh, there's, there is a, a heightened level of demonic activity that is going on during the time when Jesus shows up on the earth and is performing his ministry. Now, we don't know exactly why that is. Why is it that this is only spoken of being this frequent and this common at this time? Why is the Bible so quiet about any other instances of this before the New Testament other than the very specific ones that we've talked about? We can't say for sure. Uh, it would make sense if Jesus' arrival upon the earth sort of sparked uh, uh, whether a panic or a heightened opposition or them to come out of hiding in some way and to be more aggressive Again, we don't really know, but it wouldn't be surprising if that was the case. Nonetheless, we find here just in the time of Jesus and then the lives of the apostles um, sort of dwindling out as you get through the book of Acts ultimately. But nonetheless, especially in the Gospels, you have this heightened demonic activity. So that you have several instances of demons that are very clearly stated and affirmed by Scripture as being the ones who are doing the activity that's stated here. So Mark chapter 1, verse 21 they went into, the, into Capernaum, and immediately on the uh, Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. What do we find this demon able to do? He is uh, able to speak. He uh, is able to throw and to control this man. He is able to take over his vocal 
and verbal capacities. He speaks in this language that is understandable, not only to Jesus, but also to the people who are there in the synagogue. And he has a right understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, be quiet, stop giving the secret away. I'm the one who's supposed to be revealing these things. Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus, in fact, was uh, constantly being bombarded with more attention than he would have planned for in the direct sense. Ultimately, he was sovereign over these things, but he kept having to go out of town eventually. He wanted to be the one who spread the word on his terms, but the demons were working against that. And so it is here. But we also find that Jesus is able to overpower and to overcome this demon and that this ability was seen as extremely unique. No one else seemed to be able to do this. The distinguishing feature of his authority in this particular case was that he was able to command the unclean spirits, which implies the other people before him were not able to do this. In Mark chapter 5, he runs into another uh, demon-possessed man. In fact, we find in a parallel passage that there's a pair of them, a pair of these men, So they came, Mark 5, 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. We find here their great strength. These are very powerful beings and they're able to give uh, these humans that they possess supernatural abilities. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. You see here, he recognizes his place. Even as he is doing evil, he's doing harm to this man. He's making this man gash himself and uh, doing damage. For he had seen him saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9, he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Here we find that this is evidently not just one demon, but this whole group of demons who has gone into this man. He began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank on into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Fascinating that Jesus didn't even have to cast them out. They just left because they were so terrified of what he would do to them. This is the power and the authority that Jesus had over them. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. This was the kind of damage that could be done. Even though Jesus had shown his amazing authority and uh, the fact that he was from God in doing this, uh, this was such a terrifying thing that they didn't want him around anymore. And so he goes away. He talks to the man The man wanted to follow him. Verse 19, he didn't let him but said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Mark chapter 7, 
Verse 25, after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. There are another, a number of other instances that we find in scripture, but these are the kinds of things that were going on. These demons would make, uh, would make people mute, unable to speak. They would make them deaf. They would take over controlling them. This happened as well in the book of Acts, although again, it is not as frequent. You have a record in Acts chapter 8 of Philip the evangelist casting out demons. You have a, a record in Acts chapter 10 referring back to the gospels of Jesus casting out demons. And then in Acts 19, the unsuccessful attempt of the sons of Sceva to cast out demons where they said, uh, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And they jumped on him and they chased him out naked. Uh, don't mess with the demons as if that we are some kind of uh, power over them just by virtue of invoking the name of Jesus. These, uh, in the New Testament, they brought physical affliction. They did so by possessing people, by taking over. Now, recognizing the fact that Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by recognizing the fact that no Christian in the New Testament is said to have been possessed by a demon, some people will try to have a sort of lower level of demonic effect upon them and say that Christians can still be not possessed, but the word should be understood as merely being demonized which then opens up all sorts of partial opportunities for the demon to afflict a person in their body or their mind or their soul in some way, which leads to such terms as intrusion or uh, invasion or, yes, even affliction. But these are ways simply to try to leave open some possibility for Christians to be affected in ways that the Bible simply does not describe. And which in light of possession by the Holy Spirit and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit doesn't really make sense either. And so there is a whole theology that's devoted to trying to cure Christians of demonic affliction to fix their problems. Spiritual problems, physical problems, mental problems that has deceived itself and has deceived other people about the kind of access that believers or that demons have to believers in Christ. It is true that Acts, uh, Ephesians 6, excuse me, tells us that we engage in battle against these demonic forces, but we don't engage in battle for territory within our own minds as if they can somehow get in there or our own bodies as if they can somehow start to afflict us when we are Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God. Accordingly, then, things are blamed upon demons, physical problems, mental problems, spiritual problems, various sins, as if it is a, an issue of demonic intrusion or possession or demonization that merely needs to be rebuked or cast out or overcome by divine Christ-given authority rather than a matter that needs to be dealt with by virtue of spiritual growth. 
We want to beware of these things and make sure that we actually have biblical warrant for them and that we don't fall prey to things that sort of sound like things that were going on in the Bible but don't actually measure up. Now, in addition to demonic possession, which brought about physical affliction and or control in the New Testament, the other major way that demons are said to operate is through deception and false doctrine. Deception and false doctrine. In 1 John chapter 4, the first three verses tell us that we should be careful who we listen to. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There is a test that we need to give to everyone who claims to be speaking on behalf of Christ. This is not judgmental. This is not legalistic. This is not pharisaical. This is simply biblical. When someone comes to you and says, this is from Jesus, it is not legalistic to ask whether or not that's true. And yet in our day of non-judgmentalism, in our day of anything goes theology, to simply question something is as if we are denying the very work of God. God's word, on the other hand, which comes from God, says the exact opposite. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Why should we not believe every spirit? Because there are spirits that don't come from God that will deceive us. And in 1 Timothy 4, we find that this is exactly what God warns is going to happen. 1 Timothy 4, if you want to talk about the work of the Spirit of God and how we can know what the Spirit of God is doing, what does it say in 1 Timothy 4.1? The Spirit explicitly says something. The Spirit of God has a message for us. What is the message of the Spirit of God for us? That in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. People will be led astray by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is telling us here that there are certain teachings, doctrines being another word for that, there are certain teachings that come from demons. They have their origin in demons. They are demonic in the things that they say are true, but actually are not. And of course, the number of demonic doctrines is far greater than the number of biblical doctrines because there is only one accurate set or a group of biblical doctrines, but there are any number of unlimited, unbiblical, and erroneous doctrines. Now, how do these get there? Well, we don't know the exact mechanisms. In what way do they uh, do these demons bring their deception? Well, certainly, certainly we've seen that biblically they can take over uh, a person. They can take control of that person's speech. They can take control basically of that entire person's function. Um, they can also appear as uh, to false prophets and make them see a vision of some kind or uh, something that is a prophetic message that they think is from God and the person believes them. This happened in the Old Testament. This happened with these false prophets that went and prophesied to, um, uh, along the time of Micaiah. Why could it not have happened since then? So what you have is uh, maybe either direct 
influence and where this actual false teacher or false prophet is being controlled as they speak by a, a demon in some way or whether that person has received their message from a demon thinking that it's from God. They can maybe be promised something. Whatever it might be in some way or another, these doctrines are coming from demons. This leads us to uh, understand better what Paul says when false teachers, he says, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They don't always even know that they themselves are being deceived. They may be very sincere in what they hold to. They may think that they are Christians. They may persuade others that they're Christians and sound a lot like it. But are they actually teaching the truth of God? Doctrines of demons are the things which cause people to fall away from the faith. These are things which would draw away the disciples. And it can be any number of things. It can be explicit ungodliness on the one end, all the way to the most deceptive form of false Christianity on the other end, and everything in between, whether cults, whether offshoots, whether wrong views of scripture, wrong views of justification by faith alone, wrong views of who Jesus actually is. We need to make sure that we are combating these by understanding what the truth is. We need to know that scripture is fully divinely inspired and it is our soul, our only authority for the basis of our faith. We need to know that Jesus is the God-man who came in the flesh, the one who created all things as God and yet also took upon human flesh so that he is fully and truly man at the same time and who died on a cross to pay for all of our sins, not just some, not just to give us the ability to do what's right and to make up the rest, but one who actually paid the penalty for the entirety of our sins forever. So that if we put our faith in him, not if we try to do enough good works to get to God, not if we try to do enough good things to find favor with Jesus, but if we put our faith in him, in his death, and in the fact that he rose from the dead and we trust him, we humble ourselves before God and recognize our need of salvation. We turn from our sin, our life of sin and rebellion against God, and we and trust ourselves to Christ, and he will save us and forgive us. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we all must believe, and this is the glorious message of God's grace, that he will forgive our sins and bring us eternal life. Doctrines of demons pervert this in one way or another. In the case that he describes here, there are people who add to God's commandments. Verse 3, they forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. They add these legalistic components, which of course um, undermines the power of the gospel and of the spirit of God to actually do what is truly godly and truly good before God. So this is an example of that, but these are the kinds of things they do. 1 Corinthians 10 gives us one more example uh, one more perspective on this false teaching and on this false religion. There's an entire three chapters about um, this direct subject of meat sacrifice to idols. And Paul is working through some of these principles of the freedom that believers have because the idols aren't real. They're not really God. But he gives them a warning at the end. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? But what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? 
or that an idol is anything. He's saying, look, when we participate in communion, um, we are not actually eating the body and the blood of Christ, but there's some kind of sharing that we are saying, look, we're associated with this. This is connected with him. And the same thing, those who offer sacrifices, it's not as if they're just going up and saying, these sacrifices mean nothing to me. So he says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? What is he saying here that this idol worship which was going on in Corinth how many of these Gentiles are sitting there thinking I am worshiping a demon that's not what they thought maybe some of them but that's not what was presented they're they're worshiping idols they're worshiping this God and that God and that God they're not thinking I am worshiping these deceiving spirits these evil fallen angels and yet that's exactly what's going on that is the nature of false religion And this is why the things that people see merely as satanic or as demonic are so often missing the mark. They look at the things that just look like on the surface. Oh, he's got a red suit and horns on. No, oh, there's this darkness that I feel. You know, I was in this place and it just felt dark. Well, a lot of things that feel light are demonic too. In 2 Corinthians 11, we learn that Satan himself parades as an angel of light. And it ought not to be surprising if his messengers do too. Don't take the world's cues for what you think is demonic. Don't take the stereotypical things that just look like what is portrayed as demonic. Why would we be surprised if that's just a front for certain things, if demonic at all, And that the real work is the deception that's going on in nice-looking morality, nice-looking false religion, nice people who do nice things with a smile on their face. And yet, at the end of the day, they are drawing you away from the worship of the one true God and away from the truth of Christ. With that then, some misconceptions about demons to be aware of, and we'll just summarize because I've already addressed a number of these things, but... Just so you have a list. Misconceptions about demons. First of all, territorial spirits. Territorial spirits. I've addressed this already. They are not over certain territories, but rather personal or national or socio-political, geopolitical. They don't cover ground, but they affect people and groups and nations. Secondly, surface appearances. Misconceptions about demons are on surface, uh, related to surface appearances, things that as I just mentioned, would appear satanic or demonic to the common man not instructed by the Bible. But just because something appears demonic or satanic doesn't mean that it actually is that. And just because it doesn't definitely does not mean that it isn't. It may look very nice, but it doesn't mean that it's not from Satan. Very often what you'll read when people are talking about um, demonic activity and how we in the west don't understand these things is that you have people who would worship demons and they come out of demons and their religion is focused upon those kinds of things and the occult and you say uh, and then you go and say well they're the ones that we should look to about 
understanding what demonic activity is like. Well, do you think that people who are worshiping them when they're outside of Christ, apart from the Bible, are the ones really who are to be treated as the experts on this subject? Or should we look to the word of God and say, what does the Bible say about these things? Once again, demons are not going to present themselves in most cases as very, very obviously showing all their cards and doing exactly what people would assume that they would do if they are demonic. They work by means of deception. We don't follow after stereotypical demonic activity, the growls and howls and the other things that we just assume are that way because that's what commonly people think. Instead, we say, what does the word of God say on this subject? Another uh, misconception I've already spoken of, demons of uh, particular sins or of particular mental afflictions, demons of particular sins or mental afflictions. There is no such thing as a demon of addiction, a demon of depression, a demon of anxiety. And there is especially nowhere in scripture to warrant anything like a demon named after those mental issues or those addictions or those even individual sins. It is not by casting demons out of partial control over our souls or our body or our lifestyles that we get free from those sins. Rather, it is by walking by the Spirit. It is by taking the disciplined work of doing, of putting sin to death by all the resources that God has given us. We don't need a shortcut to liberate us from so-called bondage. Instead, having been freed from any possibility of demons having this kind of control over us we walk by the spirit and are filled by the spirit and we carry out not the desire of the flesh but of the spirit number four demons do not directly affect a christian's mind misconception would be that they directly affect a christian's mind we'll talk more about this next time in ephesians 6 but uh, there is very much influence that can come indirectly upon a christian's mind very much influence that can come And part of our battle is the battle to make sure that our mind is renewed and we don't believe the lies that come to us by means of deceptive teaching. But the idea that a demon can directly affect the thoughts of a believer's mind or that Satan can do that is not something that we find biblically. Number five, finally, possessing of Christians, as I've already spoken of, possessing of Christians. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We have no precedent for this being able to be something that then is overridden by possession by a demonic spirit. As we consider then the fight against demons, we will look next time at the methodology to how to do this, the principles behind this, Ephesians chapter 6 and other places. Um, We should properly understand the danger that is out there. But looking at Christ's example and understanding the armor of God that we have, we are ready to fight and able to overcome all satanic and demonic opposition to us and to our faith and to the gospel. So let's pray for God's strength that we might be able to do that as we go even today. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can consider these uh, rebels against you. Father, we thank you most of all that we are no longer on their side, deceived by them, rebelling against you, but instead that you have rescued us. And yet we still need your strength to fight against the wiles of the devil and against those that he rules over. We pray that you might give us grace to do that and that you'd help us to understand clearly what we are called to do and able to do. We pray that you'd be glorified as we do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.